0: From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. For today's episode, we're going to head out to the American West, a place of vast landscapes, massive skies, and coal. Lots and lots of coal. Here at the Homestake Coal Deposit, the mining of coal goes
1: on spring, summer, fall, and winter. Coal for Homestake light, power,
0: and heat Hundreds of tons of dirt are removed daily to expose the age-old bed of coal. Today the region, called the Powder River Basin, produces roughly 40% of U.S. coal. That's how Gillette, the main city in the region, got dubbed the energy capital of the United States. Shannon Anderson remembers what it was like growing up in the area in the 1980s.
1: So we were definitely booming for a while. Um, people were moving to the community we were expanding government services and trying to you know grow our schools definitely a lot of real estate growth Just, you know, for every coal job, there's a whole host of other jobs that come to a community because of just the support services and then also just the growth and economic development. Um, The Powder River Basin grew through the 80s and and really took off in 1990 with um, the Clean Air Act amendments that passed Congress in 1990.
0: The bill is balanced. It will stimulate the use of natural gas from the wells of Texas and Louisiana and And cleaner, low-sulfur coal from the hills of West Virginia to the Rocky Mountain states.
1: That provided a market in a different way for low-sulfur Wyoming coal. And then we grew exponentially from then as a coal basin.
0: The area has prospered economically because of coal. But coal has also changed its landscape. I actually visited earlier this year, and that's when I met Anderson. The views are breathtaking, and so is the scale of the mining industry.
1: The Powder River Basin is a really kind of rolling hill sort of landscape. It's a large prairie ecosystem. It's one of the last prairies really of our country in a lot of ways. It's a grasslands kind of ecosystem with just vibrant wildlife. There's herds of um, antelope everywhere. There's a lot of mule deer, rafters flying in the sky. So particularly if you visit in the winter, you're likely to see a bald eagle or two on a fence post. Um, and then when you get to the coal mines, um, they are very large. They can be larger than, say, you know, if you take the area of Manhattan or San Francisco, um, kind of think about a coal mine over one of those cities, and that's really the size of our coal mines. Um, They are very large, and they have these, you know, just open pits and a lot of infrastructure, a lot of equipment, And for most people, even in our state, actually, the coal mines are kind of out of sight, out of mind. They're in a part of the Powder River Basin that not very many people get to.
0: But if people don't think about coal mines on a daily basis, they certainly do when it comes to big decisions made in Wyoming. Coal dominates the state's economy.
1: Our coal mines are very front and center in terms of our revenue picture, funding, you know, growing up and into my adult years. I was very aware who paid the bills in our state, right? I mean, the coal industry has paid the bills and they've paid a lot of bills over the years for government services, um, schools and our communities.
0: At its peak in 2008, the state mined more than 460 million tons of coal. People were moving to Wyoming for good paying jobs. But then about a decade ago, things began to change. The market for coal began drying up and the mines began to shudder. In many parts of the country, coal has been king for many years. But that's changing. Ten years ago, coal fired half the U.S. electrical power plants. Now that's about a third and dropping.
1: Well, tonight, a major impact in the state of Wyoming is hundreds of coal miners are out of their jobs. The Black Jewel Mining Company in Gillette unexpectedly shut down yesterday, locking out nearly 600 workers. This after the company filed bankruptcy on its Eagle Butte and Bel Air mines.
0: Here in Gillette, output was already down in Wyoming about 30 percent in the past five years. Mining employment down 13 percent this year alone, and bonuses that the state collects for mining on federal lands have basically dried up. Some locals are looking for ways to reopen mines and find new uses for coal. But those solutions won't bring back the boom times. And burning coal today is incompatible with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Globally, coal no longer has the political backing it once enjoyed. To the north, Canada has set plans to end the era of coal. Coal is one of the dirtiest fuels on the planet, But soon there will be very little of it used in Canada. We will be accelerating the transition from traditional coal power to clean energy by 2030. And here in the U.S., President Biden campaigned on a cleaner energy future.
1: Electrifying an increased share of our economy will be the greatest spurring of job creation and economic competitiveness in the 21st century. That's why we're going to achieve a carbon-pollution-free electric sector by the year 2035.
0: The science is clear. Extracting coal has catastrophic consequences for our environment. According to the International Energy Agency, coal-fired power plants were the single largest contributor to the growth in emissions observed in 2018 and accounted for 30% of global CO2 emissions. So, what's the way forward for the United States, and especially for areas like the Powder River Basin? Well, according to Shannon Anderson, it's complicated. And she should know she's the staff attorney for the Powder River Basin Resource Council. It's a small organization, and so Anderson winds up doing a little bit of everything.
1: I do some lawyering, some lobbying, some advocacy work, uh, and then a lot of like grassroots organizing and campaigning. So it's, you know, I'm our only attorney here at the organization, and I'm sort of, I I do, I wear a lot of hats. (laughs) You know, we've always been interested in rulemaking efforts. Um, I've written quite a few rulemaking petitions over the years where there's a right that citizens have to, to basically tell a government agency, hey, you should do it this way. And so we do a lot of that um, because we have that background and experience and and the knowledge that that tells them why they should do it that way.
0: For a while, Anderson moved to more liberal areas on the West Coast, where she studied environmental law and later worked in community economic development. But when a job opened up back in Wyoming, she felt compelled to return home. What's it been like for you to be an advocate for... The environment, and for like thinking about climate change for action on climate change in coal country, essentially. Like I know you have a heart for coal workers and, and that you're not writing that off entirely, but it's got to be like a little bit of like an outlier position in some rooms. Um, and I just, I guess, wonder how that plays out for you personally.
1: It's definitely a challenge. And I just always have to go back to being grounded in my community, um, grounding in my history and experience here in Wyoming and thinking about that there's not an easy solution, um, but there's also not one solution. You know, a lot of folks say, okay, well, you know, it's like this climate number, you know, 350 parts per million or 1.5 degrees C, or, you know, just very kind of strong lines in the sand, because that's what the climate science tells us we need to do. But at the same time, how that plays out kind of on the ground can take any number of, of different directions. And just, you know, I try to just be really cognizant of understanding that the solutions we seek for our climate have to also be solutions that work for our people and our communities.
0: How do you feel that conversations received in like the climate policy or climate activist community? Like, um, it seems like there's a lot of division here, right? Like there are a lot of people saying very hardline coal needs mm-hmm. to be over yesterday, like the day before yesterday, if possible. <laughs> How do you handle a conversation with people who take that point of view?
1: You know, it, it's definitely a conversation I've had, I have to say, over the years, um, multiple times probably, with really good people that I respect and love. And I totally, again, the climate science says what we need to do, but it doesn't really tell us how to do it. And so that's, I think, the conversation that, that we have um, as an environmental community across the country and even across the world. There's, of course, you know, a growing recognition and reckoning around environmental justice issues. Um, and that's both, I think, in terms of of communities that have borne the impacts of pollution, but also things like fossil fuel workers. Um, and so there is, I think, a growing recognition of that. Even, you know, we call them big green <laughs> from, you know, little groups like us. Um, so they, you know, there's a recognition and, and a growing acknowledgement that, you know, you need to find leadership um, and direction from communities like ours.
0: Do you find yourself like defending the state almost when you're outside of the area or talking to someone who's not from there?
1: Yeah, you know it's kind of funny. One of my good friends in college told me one time. I talk about Wyoming like people talk about their family. It's like nobody else can criticize it, but I can criticize it all I want, which is often what happens. Uh, I definitely defend the state. I defend its history, its culture, its politics, its natural environment. But I do know that you know others may not see it that way, and and particularly now, I think it's a challenge with. The culture is real. I mean, it's been real in COVID. It's been real for climate change. Um, it's been just kind of really hitting home lately about where we are as a state and where we're going and how other people see us and how we may be losing out on opportunities if we don't find more common ground, I think, across political lines, across ideologies and uh, start recognizing the science and the reality of our energy future.
0: I mean, could you sort of dis the reputation that, that Wyoming gets for people outside the state? Like, what do you think you're defending against when you have those conversations?
1: You know, we have a reputation for not believing in climate science, uh, for instance, and that's partly true. There is, you know, national polls routinely show Wyoming is, is the lowest kind of state where climate science is trusted and respected. So that's always been a challenge, I think. And then, We're a very small state, we're a very rural state, and there is a lot of um, urban-rural bias in this country that's very real. You know, people tend to make assumptions about folks that live on ranches or, you know, live in places that aren't more urban and and maybe have diversity or, you know, just metropolitan flair that Wyoming definitely does not have. You know, they have a hard time, I think, visioning what what it really is like for us um, in this state.
0: Are people grappling with the reality that the world is moving away from coal or, or is it still kind of has a hold on the local economy and the way people think about this?
1: So let's just say it's an evolving conversation, <laughs> and there's people that I think are in both camps that you just mentioned. Um, there definitely are folks that that believe again the reality is is where it is, and we need to start moving forward and finding a plan B. And then there are folks that still are holding on to coal as the only way that will sort of the lifeblood of our economy and our communities here. So it's it's a challenge I think to bring people together to have a conversation about our future because there are two different visions but I think there's a growing sort of sense of where we are so coal produced roughly 400 million tons in the peak of 2008 and now we're producing last year was just slightly over 200 million tons so we've gone down about half of where we were at peak production that's still 200 million tons of coal which is still a very large amount of coal and i i think that gives us the time frame to think about what's next and you know it's not going to be an immediate cliff where you know one day coal is being produced in the state and the next day it's not we're going to have a little bit of warning and um we're going to be able to i think find a way forward but the more it goes down and the fewer and fewer tons we start to produce i think the more real it is going to get for folks on where this is really headed um, the challenge with Wyoming is that we don't control the market. So we sell our coal to other states. At peak, we were selling coal in 37 states, roughly 200 power plants around the country. So chances are, if you were turning on your lights kind of anywhere in the country, you were actually had a Wyoming connection with that light switch. It's, of course, gone down significantly, and there are fewer and fewer power plants that burn Powder River basin coal every year. Um, But that is the challenge of Wyoming is that we don't make these decisions here. Um, It's utility executives in other states that are deciding whether or not Powder River Basin coal has a future.
0: So, I mean, this is obviously like a really tricky situation that this region is facing, right? Because you have an economy that's driven by coal, which is an energy source that we know is a a big contributor to the climate crisis and therefore is really dangerous. Right. So like in your view, I know you've thought about this a lot. Like what is the way forward? How do you reconcile those two things that seem to be in opposition?
1: It's an immensely challenging question. You know, the urgency of the climate crisis is real. It's so real this summer here in Wyoming. I mean, we've just had day after day of wildfire skies and the drought is just, I mean, the landscape is so dry this summer. All of the climate science that we keep seeing every single day, you know, it is a reality that we need to move our world faster in terms of addressing this crisis. But then you kind of sit here in Wyoming and you realize that that if you, we move any faster, we're going to have some challenges with that. Um, again, we have to not only sort of reinvent our workforce, but we have to reinvent our economy here in the state. Um, We have some pretty tough questions to ask ourselves about taxes and revenue sources and how we survive without this source of revenue going forward. And that's been a real challenge to have those conversations here in a state like Wyoming, but we need to have them. And and hopefully we have the space and time to have those conversations and move them forward. Uh,
0: So there's this term like just transition that gets applied to this idea of What comes next for fossil fuel workers? Right. And it's this idea that as we phase out fossil fuels because of the climate crisis, like what is the just thing to do for the people who are working in those industries? Do you see the federal government doing anything or doing enough? What should be happening in that space?
1: So essentially money should be happening, and, and I think that is on the table both in Congress and in, in the administration. Um, but Wyoming needs some help. We need some planning assistance, we need some coordination, we need some bridge money, frankly, to help us get through that revenue gap that we're going to start experiencing as coal declines. Um, because what we don't want to see is not only people losing their jobs, but our communities losing their services that help to um, deal with job loss and, and things like that, too. So it's, it's sort of a, a multi-pronged situation going on here in Wyoming.
0: Could you describe kind of your day-to-day work a little bit? Like what what some of the Main issues that have been your focus since, you know, you moved back in 2007, like whether they're policy discussions or whether there are particular like cases that that stick out, but but help me like see your kind of day to day way that you're engaging with coal and the environment.
1: So the the biggest conversation has definitely been probably around the federal coal program and the future of federal coal leasing. So sort of the way it works is, um, again, this is coal that is owned by you and me as American taxpayers, and the federal government decides to sell that coal to a private coal company. Um, Often that's done when a coal company applies to get more coal from the federal government. Um, They have an existing mine and they want more coal because they're needing to kind of mine the space next to... Where they're mining now. And there's a real question about how the government sells that coal to a private company. The sale has to be what's under the law, it has to be in the public interest. And so there's a very open question now about what does it mean to have federal coal and is federal coal program in the public interest, particularly when you're thinking about things like the climate crisis. And if it's not in the public interest, what can we do and and how do we do things differently? Um, So that's been, I think, the biggest policy question. Um, It was a little bit, I have to say, dormant in terms of the conversation during the Trump years. But now, again, is is starting to reemerge and particularly under the Biden administration and, and moving forward so that's that's a big one um i also work on oil and gas and in a variety of other Um, topics. Um, On coal as well, um, you know, bonding and reclamation has been a big topic. So again, thinking about these very, very large coal mines and how they actually get cleaned up and reclaimed and that landscape gets put back together. The aquifer system that lives underground gets restored. Um, So that's been a big part of my work and ensuring that the industry actually pays for that and that taxpayers like you and me aren't left paying for that reclamation work after the coal industry is gone.
0: When we talk about like a a just transition for fossil fuel workers, like what does that actually look like? Like what would that entail?
1: There definitely will be, I think, early retirement. We're at a stage in, in the industry where that's a feasible conversation to have with a lot of folks. But for younger employees, I think there's a question about what do they want to do? What skills they may want to have? Um, I I do know that at least at the utility level, there's some utilities that are working on job retraining plans and and opportunities where, you know, say you'd even want to go be a nurse or find um, a new job that's of high demand in your community. And you can go get the skill set to do that with with job training assistance, either provided by um, the company that used to employ you or maybe stayed in. Assistance as well, so there's a lot of interest in retraining, reskilling, and then also I, I think the reclamation work is going to be there for a while. Uh, these mines are not filled back in yet, so the, the big pits in the ground need a little bit of work still. So there will be workers that can do that in, in a bridge fashion, um, at least for a few years you know it's a challenging conversation for us looking at what could be different and what we could do but it's not going to be like one silver bullet like the coal industry is for us it's going to have to be a variety of different solutions and small businesses and larger businesses but um, a combination of of different things coming in
0: well it's good that you know you and other people smart people are, are, are thinking about it thank you shannon
1: thank you so much i appreciate it
0: we'll be right back You're listening to Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. Of course, weaning the economy off of coal is not just a domestic issue, but something that people are thinking about all over the world.
2: People absolutely recognize that we have to phase out coal and that it would have to be done in a manner that will ensure justice, especially for the workers themselves, but also the impacted communities. This is Tasneem Esop.
0: She's the executive director of the Climate Action Network.
2: A very large network of civil society organizations, over 1,500 members in around 130 countries in the world.
0: We reached her from her office in Cape Town. Like in Wyoming, South Africa very much runs on coal. According to the country's Presidential Climate Change Coordinating Commission, 60% of South Africa's $302 billion economy is reliant on energy produced from coal. Like Anderson, SUP says there will be some pain for local communities especially ones that are centered around mining. But there are opportunities for jobs in land reclamation and in the burgeoning clean energy sector. It won't be easy to make this titanic shift, but South Africa, of course, has experience overturning unjust economic and political systems. Under much different circumstances, the country toppled the racist apartheid system in the
2: 1990s. Never, never, and never again Shall it be that this beautiful land will again experience the oppression of one by another?
0: Esop was a leader during the anti-apartheid movement, and she sees that experience as relevant to her work promoting a just transition from fossil fuels.
2: When we're talking about the just transition, we're really talking about a scale of transformation that is economy-wide and society-wide, and that's why if you had a social contract approach to it, you will clearly define who takes responsibility for what. So, for example, education and training. Clearly, government has to lead on that, right? Our education systems, higher education have to be re-geared re- for this new form of economy. If you talk about skills training, yeah, you would have partnership between the private sector, for example, and government. If we're looking at financing, yeah, we would have to look at our own budgets domestically. We would have to look at how we uh, attract investment—foreign investment or domestic investment. So I don't think this is—we are going to, you know, beat the stick on a coal industry and hold them entirely responsible. I think we would have to adopt a collective responsibility for this and do have an approach that actually has a social contract between all social partners to facilitate this just transition and identify who can take responsibility for what.
0: SOP says a worldwide push for change helped end apartheid and that global support will be essential in the battle against fossil fuels too.
2: Honestly, if we, for example, did not have the kind of support that we had from workers, for example, in different countries, who decided, well, they're not going to be supporting the imports of South African goods, et cetera, and mobilized and went on strike around these things. Communities who stood with us, who would demonstrate at embassies, et cetera, on an ongoing basis, just the levels of global solidarity. We would not have been able to win without that international pressure. We would still be living under apartheid in South Africa. And so the lesson of global solidarity is so important. Now what we're suffering from is a global crisis, a health crisis, and a climate crisis. And this is no time to turn inwards, take care of yourself, This is no time for that. This is when we have to stand together in the collective interest of the global common good. For all of us, our fates are intertwined. Our
0: fates are intertwined. That is certainly true, even if the climate movement has realized it only recently. Since the Industrial Revolution, much of the world has relied on dirty fuels that we now know are heating up the planet and creating an existential crisis. Eliminating fossil fuels is clearly essential, based on the climate science. Yet, the workers caught up in that, the coal miners and oil workers, aren't to blame for this crisis. Their livelihoods are at stake, and for a transition to clean energy to be truly fair, their perspectives must be included. That's it for today's episode of Heat of the Moment. Our thanks to Nassim Esop, the executive director of the Climate Action Network and Shannon Anderson of the Powder River Basin Resource Council. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the Climate Investment Funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Zamone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Thanks for listening.